Coming to you from the road itself, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. For July and August of this year, we are coming to you from the road. We are on a pilgrimage to understand the story of immigration, exploitation, and labor in the U.S. Last episode, we stood on the land where whips cracked backs to bleed more work from black and brown bodies. We stood in a literal valley of dry bones, a mass grave filled with the bodies of men and boys swept up in the post-antebellum terror of peonage. On this episode, we will speak to a veteran of the farm worker movement about the Bracero program, and we will talk with faith leaders pushing back against the exploitation of migrant immigrants and asylum seekers in America's detention system today. Pilgrimage is different than a tour or a trip. Trips are all about the fun pictures you take home. Tours are all about the places you go to to learn. But pilgrimage is about the whole experience, especially the in-between spaces. Pilgrimage is about transformation, so you will join us in the car as we process the experience, and you will join us in spiritual practices that help us to stand in the darkness that we encounter. I have called three friends and asked them to join me on this special pilgrimage. Sandy Ovalle serves as the immigration campaign manager at Sojourners, and she will be my conversation partner on the road. And you may even hear a little from sound engineer and producer David Dalt, who will also serve as our driver for part of the time. <laughs> he and I are switching off on driving duty, praise the Lord. And you may hear from Alice Jere Yacino, our videographer who comes to us from the Work of the People, the group helping us produce a corresponding four-part film curriculum for churches. Recently, I read a piece in The Atlantic that made me gasp. Then it made me cry. Doctors Ariel Ron and Dial Norwood drew the connection between indentured servitude the race-based chattel slavery, and migrant exploitation. Here's the passage that made me gasp. Ron and Norwood write, In 1852, the increasingly acrimonious debate of the institution of slavery's future led the New York Times to advocate the importation of indentured Chinese laborers, so-called, quote, coolies, as a, quote, happy medium, Quote, forced and voluntary labor. These foreigners from supposedly backward places would occupy a new position on the lower rungs of the American racial hierarchy between slavery and freedom, black and white.
boom, there it is. These were the years when America began to broaden its racial categorizations beyond black and white. And it was done to expand the pool of people able to exploit. And the new class of people would be seen as perpetual foreigners, unlike European immigrants, which the article explains are subsumed into the 18th century unifying and empowering construct called whiteness. The Alamo is often referred to as the cradle of Texas liberty. At the turn of the 19th century, the lush soil of the southern gulf and borderlands of Texas called out to prospectors looking to multiply territory and profits. 1820, Moses Austin receives a land grant from Spain to settle the land we now call Texas. He aims to carve out Texas as an Anglo territory within the Spanish colony of Mexico. Moses dies a year after receiving the grant, but passes his vision to his son Stephen on his deathbed. Stephen looks at Texan soil and sees dollar signs. King Cotton would thrive here, but not without slave labor. So Stephen recruits 300 Anglos to settle the land in Texas, giving more incentives the more slaves they brought. He was determined that Texas would be a slaveholding territory, but he ran into a problem. Mexico was souring on its relationship with slavery, and Texas was still a part of Mexico. So in 1827, Stephen Austin attempts to entrench slavery in Texas by passing Article 13, but Mexican legislature subverts it establishing the immediate abolition of all children of enslaved Africans, granting a six-month grace period before the abolition of all slaves, and improving conditions for all enslaved and freedmen. Austin, ever the businessman, encouraged his settlers to work a runaround to the new Mexican law by calling their slaves laborers, family servants, and working men. He also rigged an early version of peonage. Get this. He required emancipated slaves to work off the debt that they had accrued for the clothes, food, and housing provided for their own enslavement. Mexico's black president, Vicente Guerrero, abolished slavery altogether in 1829. The Battle of the Alamo followed seven years later, in 1836. I spoke with Michael Mata, Chicano specialist in transformational development, whose childhood was spent in Texas. So you shared that when you were growing up here in Texas, people talked about three people groups being present in this land, um, Americans who were whites, Negroes who were African-Americans and Mexicans. Those were the categories that were given and you were not counted as American. I wondered if you could kind of share more about that with me. Yes. Uh, it was clear in how uh, my classmates at school and even in the neighborhood 
how they would relate to me. And they were clear that I was Mexican. Mm-hmm. But one of the other um, experiences I had and where it was clearly that I was different was even on the playground when we used to go and play during recess. And, of course, one of the famous plays that we liked to engage in was, and this was in San Antonio, the Alamo. And I often wanted to play Davy Crockett because he was supposedly the hero or one of the heroes. And, and they, I wouldn't be allowed to do that. My, my classmates would say, no, you, can't, you have to play Santa Ana. Uh, I wasn't too aware of it. I thought, well, he's not the hero, but I will play Santa Ana. And I would have uh, experienced a revision of history because when I played it, Santa Ana would win. Not only we know that he defeated people in the Alamo, but we would be the heroes of the story, uh, which really infuriated my my white classmates because they felt that I should be defeated and and that they should win. They always saw themselves as they were the winners, and I didn't even know that they really had lost. I know they were you know they they were all destroyed, but killed. Uh, but that was always a sadar we played, and so any time we play, it was like okay, you're the you're the Mexican, so we play the Mexican role there too um and so that was something that i had to accept that i'm mexican but we were always comparing ourselves to the americans and the americans were clearly then the whites and that was also even not so much in my school in my neighborhood but even in my church though we were a latino spanish dominant um, congregation and we we were always talking about the american church or the american resources and those are the ones that had a lot more than we did. Mm-hmm. So it was clear, or at least how I experienced that we were second class, not as privileged. And certainly when there was problems, we were probably the bunt, you know, the, the, the point of that, that problem. Yeah. And I remember one boy said, I don't like Mexicans because one of them stabbed my cousin. And so all Mexicans were weapon carrying individuals, right? I mean, in school, uh, even though I did well, uh, I was accused that I must have done some cheating or I did something that I thought was innocuous. Uh, I was accused of doing something, you know, uh, some you know, uh, uh, behavior that was not acceptable and I would be you know, punished. Mm-hmm. Uh, even one time, you know, hit on the head with uh, a pencil by the teacher. I remember one of my f- classmates being put up front in front of, in front of the, the chalkboard and slapped with a large yardstick. And so, but I never saw any of the white kids getting wow. uh, punished physically wow. or so he kept after school. Right. So, so that, that was a, a framework, but then I began to understand that okay, I am this category and other people were this way. There were some remarks about around Negroes, but I never saw them around, maybe on television, on some news, but that was a really clear distinction. American equals white, mm. uh, Mexican or brown and second class. Wow. And so when and how did your family come to the U.S. and where did you grow up? So I was born in Houston, Texas, and mm-hmm. grew up in San Antonio and Chris, uh, Corpus Christi, my dad was born in Dallas. Uh, my mother was in, in, in California. And we've always kind of joked that, I mean, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was because we had deep roots on this side of the bo- what is now the border, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't known as 
anything other than Mexico way back. And at that time, it was part of Spain as well. We talk about colonization of the Americas. And so that was pretty much uh, our identity. Since that time, I also noticed that and have, have become aware that there was movement from northeastern Mexico into what we now know as Texas. Yeah. And that was primarily driven by a need for laborers in, in the U.S., and primarily uh, Texas, because that was very accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like today, seeking better opportunities. And at that time, Texas was no longer a slave state. You know, they, they had kind of eliminated that, and, at least formally. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, there was a need for more laborers, right? And mm-hmm. so the Mexicans at that point. So there were some, there were some families, that I, I think some relatives, who are living along the border. Uh-huh. And if we probably dig deeper into ancestry, we could probably find them in North northeastern Mexico. But but the, my um, nuclear family is really deeply ingrained in Texas. Wow. Or the Republic of Texas, as it was once known. So did your family ever have experience with the migrant worker experience? Like when you were growing up, I remember you telling me about yes, going uh, to a field. I, I wasn't, again, wasn't really aware of that. And it wasn't until very later in almost my young adult life that I reflected upon my experience uh, a one-time visiting my grandmother who I li- at that time lived in Plainview, which is right si- outside of Lubbock, uh-huh. Texas. So it's in the panhandle, right? And so we went to stay there, and, and she lived very humbly. It was a one little room shack, probably five by five, if, if anything. It was just enough for a bed and my cot and you know a table. There was no running water. So she would have to go out and wow. bring water in. And it was actually, as I reflect upon it, a migrant camp because there was other families there. And then we had a common hot house, you know, so right. we had to do that. There was no showers. So you, you bathe uh, in your space. And I know she would get up early before I would, it would be before dawn and say, oh, I'm going to go work. And, and later on, I found out she was picking cotton. Wow. She would left me to the care of the uh, high school girls that were around at that time. But uh, th- that was a time that I just realized, well, she's a hard worker. And she always has been very in- industrious in-, in terms of making it go well for her family, mm-hmm. cook whatever's in- available. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, she and many others in that camp, I can't think about how large it was, but mm-hmm. I know there was a number of almost huts or shacks that were mm. kind of all connected by some walking paths, mm. wooden walking paths, because when it rained, it get really muddied. But uh, wow. yes, uh, that was for a while. It wasn't talked about. It was just, again, yeah. part of life. And that's what she did. So for you, what's the connection between the history that we've been exploring, the history of exploitation of labor and the current broken immigration system? Well, the exploitation of labor is unfortunately a commonplace in our world today, and especially among colonized countries. Um, Europe, um, primarily, was looking for uh, not only uh, resources to populate their coffers and their their uh, treasure chests back at their countries, but they needed the labor, people to the brawn to go in and dig up or turn over what they had and they use force more often than not. Mm-hmm. And one of the, and I mean, I'm going to use this intentionally, commodities they had in terms of labor was the African people from that continent and enslaved them. And so that was brought them in. But here in the U.S., 
the Spanish did also not only eventually uh, brought slaves over, but also indentured uh, Indians to do a lot of the the work. Um, And it's not just the army garrisons that did that, but, you know, for better or worse, uh, mostly worse, uh, the religious institutions did as well, Uh exploited the, the, the Indians. And we know that along the western coast of California and the missions that were built there too. Mm -hmm. So it seems often the case that people of color have been uh, utilized for doing hard labor. And as we experienced and saw in Sugarland here in Texas, uh, Mm -hmm. whether that be enforced through colonization or forced labor Mm -hmm. systems, Mm -hmm. corporate systems, Mm -hmm. in tandem with public systems, jails in particular, prisons, have utilized again um, that kind of a labor where they don't have a choice Mm. or the choice is taken away from them or the choice is either work or die, right? And so that seems to be the narrative. So have you been to the Alamo before? I have multiple times, but I was very young. And Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alamo. Uh, my name is David. I'll be your ticket. I didn't really know. Very good. Huh. Okay, should we go in? We are now. We're now entering the Alamo. Hello, officer. The microphone, sir. Yes. What, what are you guys trying to do? Or uh, so we're we're just doing some audio capture and some recording for a podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So so unfortunately, you won't be able to do it here without a permit. Okay. How do we get a permit? So if you go to our website. Oh, and every day tourists go in and soak in this bin. So we had a little adventure. What happened? So the content and media specialist for the Alamo stopped me and has checked with their lawyers. And we will actually be in touch with their lawyers because the use of the image of the Alamo in any way is pretty heavily regulated. And since we're doing something on immigration, he said he didn't know if it could be politicized, but that was what their lawyer could talk to us about. That's what I thought. Lawyer? Wow. Like, what are we doing? Like, it's like, okay. We're doing something for churches, y'all. Yeah. Not a big deal. Like, it's like, here's my thing that I want to capture something in, like. Yeah. um, Yeah. But it's like, as you walk into the Alamo, there's this big sign that says. uh, Can we get a shade? Yeah, absolutely. Let's walk over here. (laughs) I'm burning up here. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Okay. From the fire that burned their bodies rose the eternal spirit of sublime heroic sacrifice which gave birth to an empire state. <sighs> what the fuck? An empire state? <laughs> yes, that's what Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> wow. Sorry, but that's like too much. No, it's right. And and this is this is the first thing you see. So they, they actually craft the, the narrative before you walk in. Like yeah, they, yeah. they're telling you what happened here, what they and how to see it before you even touch, before you even pass 
the barrier of the Alamo. Yeah, and then there's a little angel on the other side, and she has two wings, and so one wing has the Republic of Texas flag, and then the other wing has the U.S. Uh, flag. Wow. So it's like this divine presence with these two powers. Like, they have a lot of pride of, like, um, wow. around, like, how many rights they had before, because they were a republic for 10 years, but <laughs> they were its own Ten years. So, but what I was going to say is, like, as you walk in, there's a sign that says to um, keep silence and to take off your caps because this is a place where like heroes died mm. and so there's like such reverence around this place in some ways that marks this heroic giving of life like laying down your life for yeah. the birth of this nation Texas yeah um, and it's like it's so these people have a choice to give their lives for this. But then I'm thinking of like this past few days, we have been seeing like all these lives that were taken yes. over and over. And these lives on, yes. on whose backs this country was built. Yeah. And and there's nothing, right? Like there's a plain, like beautiful, like just land. And yeah. no, like take off your hat. Like take this is a oh. sign, you know, like what I was saying earlier. Like there's no sign that says like take off your shoes. You're entering into holy ground. Yeah. And here there's a take off your hats. Keep silent because you're entering into these like this holy uh, ground where we lost. Where we lost. Where we lost. <laughs> but we don't think we lost. No. Like, in, so it's it was just one more step towards freedom, right? Yeah. They say so the thing. The thing that gets me too about that is that there is absolutely no mention of the reality of the, the question of slavery anywhere in this Alamo, nowhere. But the reality is, is that Austin required anybody who would who would take up one of his parcels to bring in slaves, and he gave them more land the more slaves they brought in. So they were determined that this would be a slave state, a slave nation. And Mexico was determined not to have that, which is the reason they fought the, quote, Texans, is they did not want a slave state in their nation. They had already given up slavery. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing that it just blows my mind. So I, I actually, I read this and reread it kind of. I'm not sure if you picked it up, but, but it basically said um, here, oh, it was so poetic. The last stand, here was the last stand at the Alamo, at the dark end of the church. So that's the church. And at the very dark end, they had their last stand, you know. And I just thought, here, people fought to make another slave state at the dark end of the church. That's deep. Even this, like, lawyer stuff, it feels like the narrative is so protected. So you can't undo it Mm -hmm. with, like, having your own interpretations of the narrative or how you're going to use it. We have to approve because we have to keep it going. Even for something, like, in the greater scheme of, like, the U.S., like, this is, like, a little thing, right? Like, this podcast is, like... Yeah, yeah, it's a pod. It's like a a Freedom Road podcast, y'all. Like, it's it's not NPR. You know what I mean? It's, It's not... I honestly, like, the, the big through line that's kind of coming through for me is the through line of the narrative and the way that it's been spun. Like, both the oppression against blacks with slavery and Jim Crow, the thing that's happened in this area of the country is that they don't just bury and not talk about. They reframe 
Like they literally, they reframe the, the antebellum South as this place where you sip julep tea, you know, and you rock on your porch and you have columns that look like Rome and you live the life. And it's, it's tranquil and there are no monuments to the atrocities, like you were saying. And then here... <laughs> it's like this humongous building where you can't even touch the walls because they're yes. sacred. Yes. And they're sacred because they see... They have reframed this space to be about their freedom but they were trying to be free to own slaves. And they lost. Yes. <laughs> it still kind of blows my mind. They actually really did lose. And that begs the question, right? Of like, you're trying to be free to own slaves. That phrase that you just said, it's yes. like... Well, I mean, when I think about that question, I, I'm actually, I kind of move towards, we are free, we're called to exercise dominion in the world, but what that looks like in Genesis 1 is very specific. It's not just random. It's, it, we're called to help steward God's shalom, to help steward the overwhelming wellness of all the relatedness in God's creation which requires reciprocity and truth-telling and care for the body and the image of God and, and the rest of creation and protection of the, I mean, like explicitly protection of the people and serving of all of creation. Like that's what God's shalom is and requires. And it is not freedom to own slaves. It is just no, not. No, it's not. So they broke shalom. Absolutely. That's what they did. They broke shalom. And the state of Texas continues to break shalom by twisting the narrative and telling untruths about what really happened. And it's these weapons of destruction, but right. it, like we're at the plantations and and the weapons are not so evident, you know, they're not yeah. like this cannon that's like yeah. my size standing in front of me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like there were weapons of mass destruction over there that were yeah. more subtle. Yeah. That were in the purchasing of people that were in the um, holding people captive. Yeah. Um, and those weapons, they're, they're not to be seen, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like weapons and the weapons. And, um, these weapons are justified to defend like our, our like our freedom and our uprisings. Yeah. And these uprisings are like not to be seen, they're to be squashed, they're to be the uprising for freedom that um, many people who were enslaved did, enslaved did, um, those are to be like completely erased, you know, it's like there's no... Yeah. Eradicated. Eradicated, slashed out. I'm reminded of um, Andrea Smith's paper on the logics of white supremacy. And what she says is that the logic of white supremacy works with regard to the foreigner. And she's really thinking about the ori in the in the in this um, philosophical sense, the Orientalism that happens with Middle Eastern and Asian people is in that in that actual like academic sense. What they do is they consider those people almost fully human and so therefore a threat and so they um 
engage in perpetual warfare against those people. And for the African, for the person of African descent, the logic of white supremacy, according to Andrea, says you exist only to offer our people free and no cost labor. That's the logic. So whenever we encounter you, that's what you exist to do for us. And the logic with regard to, to Latinos, Native Americans, is that they must be eradicated completely just because they are just savages. So they are an, an imminent and, and certain threat, so they just must be eradicated. Genocide, it's the logic of genocide. But what she says about Latinos, which is interesting, she says that actually they fall into all three categories at various times. And actually all of the groups can switch and kind of shapeshift. The logics can be applied you know, to all of them at different points. But Latinos are seen as both the brown, almost fully human, but not fully human, foreign threat, hence the militarized border, and hence the cannons at the Alamo, right? But they're also now, especially because of their darker skin, and most likely the ones who are the most threatened in Mexico and in Central America are ones of African descent or indigenous descent. They are seen as being able to be employed for no-cost or low-cost labor. And the indigenous ones are just fully eradicated for the land. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Have you ever been on a pilgrimage? The very first one I ever did changed my life forever. We do a lot of things here on Freedom Road, but the most powerful of all is pilgrimage. Freedom Road journeys roll through cohesive stories and help us understand better how the world broke and what it will take to be whole. Our absolute favorite thing is to leverage the power of pilgrimage to strengthen groups' capacity to do justice in their communities. Check out the show notes for this episode. Click the link to learn more about Freedom Road pilgrimages and contact us through the website if you'd like to join us on Freedom Road. Peonage and convict leasing was outlawed in the 1920s as black sharecropping families fled north and west in the Great Migration to escape the terror of Jim Crow, the U.S. sought ways to fill its southern agrarian labor gap. The Bracero Program was the government's response. Dr. Juanita Valdez Cox is the executive director of Lupe. Now, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta's United Farm Workers led the way in the fight for farm worker rights in the 1960s and 70s. They also built Lupe, which now has an outpost in San Juan, Texas, near the southernmost point of the border. It's situated 
in a sleepy town full of Mexican restaurants, hotels, and only miles from the wall. Dr. Cox has walked with the farm worker and immigrants' rights movement since the early 1970s. So can you tell us a little bit about the Bracero program? Like what is, what was the Bracero program? Okay. Yes. The Bracero program was a program between the U.S. government and the Mexican government Mm -hmm. to bring in single men as farm workers to harvest the crops here in the valley. I know that they had people here, men, workers, but they also had teams of workers that would go to Michigan and Ohio or other states where wherever there was a crop, and then they brought in the, the workers uh, in from, uh, from Mexico. Uh, there were many workers here, right? But the government is always looking for cheaper labor. And so they would import the, the braceros to come in. And uh, my dad worked the sabracero for, uh, for a few years until he was able to get the papers for my mom and for the rest of the family. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. So the, how did the, where did the papers come? How did they come? Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad worked with a farmer most of his life in the fields. Uh, he was the irrigator for yeah. the crops and the tractor driver. And he worked with the same boss man for uh, maybe 10 years. And the boss told him that if he wanted to bring his family across, that the, the boss could sign a paper saying he had to work, right. that he had work. And so that he didn't have to be the a burden of the state, oh. and so that he could uh, then apply to be a, a legal resident. Oh my goodness! And once you, it takes years. It's not easy. But once yeah. he became a legal resident, then he was able to get my mother and the children. So he was able to transition from the Bracero program to being a legal resident. No, the Bracero program ended for my dad. Okay. And then he found work in this ranch, not too far I from here, see. with his patron. Okay. His name, the, the boss man was Gilliam. His last name was Gilliam. And mm-hmm. he's the one that helped my dad. And that was really interesting, yeah, that, that, that they were able to get that um, for farm workers. And I remember, I think it, everybody says, well, he was a, a Republican president because he was under Reagan. But they failed to say that both houses were Democrat. So they had that support and they wow. were, why it was different and they were able to do it. I know that Texas did not allow the Bracero programs for a while. Like mm-hmm. it took a while to adopt here mm-hmm. in Texas. Mm-hmm. Why was Texas so resistant to it? I don't know at that time because in the 50s, I don't remember, I was, I guess, not old enough to, to know what kind of government was in charge here because this was a huge agricultural area. It was a number one industry. The te- state of Texas was known for agriculture and for oil. And so uh, of all the states, Texas is so conservative that, that I'm sure they were anxious to get their hands on cheap labor. Yeah. I really don't understand. Do you know who was doing the labor here before the um, before the Barceros came? It's always been Mexican people because because remember that, that up until, what was it, 18, 18, 1847, I believe, 1849, this was all Mexico, California and Utah and before the Treaty of Hidalgo. So all of this belonged to Mexico. So it's always been... Mexican laborers here. I don't know if it was like the Filipinos in California who came before the farm workers, uh, the Mexican farm workers. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things that we found out on our travels is that peonage and um, convict mm-hmm. leasing was mm-hmm. really big and mm-hmm. sharecropping was really big because slavery had happened here. I'm not sure if it was up north, like in, uh-huh. in the Houston area, or if it was also in San Antonio. But when Austin, when, when Stephen Austin actually bought the land, and you know, mm-hmm. he, he actually insisted mm-hmm. that they bring <clears throat> slaves. So do you know if there did were sharecroppers? Oh, they did. Oh, yeah. The, in oh. fact, Texas was a huge slaveholding state. But what my question I they is, sold it. yeah, oh, <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> they might have done that too. Right. It was a very low, low price. Yeah. I bet. I bet. I bet. Yeah. I don't know if they ever paid. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't know. I've been studying some Mexican American <laughs> history, and you know, it's it's a amazing. different story than what they told me in well, high school. Right. Right. No, that's exactly right. Well, I guess my question though is, do you know the program was supposed to be good for Mexicans, mm-hmm. and we talked about this yes. earlier. It was supposed to be good for Mexicans. Why wasn't it? Why was it exploitive? What was exploitive about it? Well, there were two governments in charge, neither uh-huh. one of which you can trust very much to look after the workers, right? Yeah, it was yeah. an agreement between Mexico and and the U.S. government, and their interest was the crops. Yeah, It wasn't for the benefit of the workers yeah. or for the workers to get ahead in any way. It was you come and you harvest the crops, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we need you for. And then you go back to Mexico. We don't care that, you know, that, that your families are there or that you didn't work enough to send money. The governments fulfilled what they needed, which was harvest the crops. And that's the way it was here. And, and when we used to go up north, they didn't care we had a, a good house to live in. As long as we harvest the crops for, for this world to have enough to eat, then then that is it. I remember that we had to stay one time, like in uh, in those box cars for like old trains. Say that again. Yeah, here in uh, here in Pecos, Texas. You had to stay, and uh-huh. that was where you lived. Yes, in box cars, in trains, box, train in, box cars. But it was like old ones that sometimes they built the new railroad. Yeah, yeah. And they left some on the old. So and that's each where family, you Each family would get um, we would each get a, a box. You got a box car, in other uh-huh. words, and it's hot down here. Very hot. It was must have been hot in that box car. My mom and dad say that because we didn't have screens on the doors, there were a lot of mosquitoes. Uh-huh. And so my mom and dad, my dad would sleep and my mom would get his hat and all night they were like, you know, so that we could, the kids oh. could sleep. And then my, my mom would then take turns and, and fanning us. Oh fanning my us. God. And that's how their mom and dads uh, used to do for their children. So the conditions, right? The conditions were not humane. No, and this this is later on, right? Can yeah. you imagine how it was for my dad, who was a bracero, or the others when, where we had Mexican people, Mexican Americans like us, had no built, still had not built any power whatsoever, power whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so talk to us about that building power piece because one of the things that that struck me when you were talking uh-huh. before mm-hmm. is that. Because the agreements of the Braceros were mm-hmm. between two governments, right. they couldn't negotiate for nothing. For there was no way, nothing accept. they could do. No, you needed the work, yeah. and whatever they said you do, you had to do. That's what you had to do. So right? Lupe comes out of the United Farm Workers Movement, right. and that's Here from we Cesar were, Chavez. Right. And Dolores Huerta. And Dolores Huerta. Uh-huh. You have her pin on your shoulder right yes, now. Yes, because we're going to go so to cool. uh, D.C. Uh, Tuesday, because uh, they're giving us the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award to the organization. To Lupe? Yes, to Lupe. Uh, 
Aha! Isn't that incredible? Congratulations! And they're gonna yeah. and they're 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 gonna take me to Hyannisport. I've never been there. Oh my goodness! It's one of their board meetings to talk That's about fabulous. the organization. Wow! I know. Well, touch the crystal. I, still can't, I know. I still can't believe it. It's like me. Yeah, my That's mom fabulous. and dad would like. Yeah, they would never believe it. But, okay, um, yeah. I have another. I have another question for uh-huh. you. So, what was the relationship between the Bracero program and Operation Wetback? You know, Operation Wetback. I, even, was I hate even saying that, that word. I know. It feels really horrible to yeah, say that it word. It is, but, but it's but the that, actual name. Yes, but that was more about the Border Patrol uh-huh. and and DPS. Uh-huh. Uh, well, actually, it was law enforcement uh-huh. against people that came across without their documents, uh-huh. and beca- and because they had to cross the river, and they had to cross uh-huh. the river in. Uh, what do you call those uh, those tubes with, oh. that go inside the wheel? Inner, of the tubes. Car, inner, inner tubes. tubes. Yeah, yeah. Inner tubes, and they, and so of course people got wet, and so that's why they called them like that. Wow. And what it was, it was rounding them up and and sending them back to to Mexico. It was like a it was law enforcement because it wasn't just border patrol, but it was DPS and it was the sheriffs and it was all of law enforcement looking for them at the river because we're so close to the river here, right. a few miles right. Me- right. It's Mexico. And and so that's where they would be, and that's why they called that because it was a law, all of law enforcement against the the. And it mainly was from Mexico. And when did it across. happen? When did it happen? It, that, that wasn't too long ago, actually. That was still in the. I think it was still in the eighties. Wow. Yeah. May have maybe it started. No, it didn't start in the seventies. I think it started in the eighties and maybe even oh, into wow. the early nineties. So Sandy, what did you think? Like what what strikes you after this few hours we had with Miss Juanita? I love that I get to talk to someone with such rich history in her own body. Oh my gosh, yes. Someone who has personally been working in the fields in the day, back in the day, who was an organizer. I think to me the struggle, you know, la lucha, the, the struggle that she's been in for decades she started in the 70s late 70s she said literally even to know like someone that's been in the struggle for longer than I've been alive right and so (laughs) it's um, it's incredible and to know the kind of work that she's done from the margins I think oftentimes we think change comes from the top down or change you know we need these policies and whatnot but we we need them to come from the margins and so I think we ignore oftentimes the work that happens at the margins the, the work that happens in places especially people of privilege right like it's, it's the unseen since the the people that are far away and whatnot and and here's Juanita who has been doing incredibly amazing work that is impacting nationally people with yeah. like even um she was talking about the the large hoe and the el asadon chico right like the the, the short hoe yes. and something that quick that that's simple that specific yes making that change actually helped people's lives yes it's like a very basic thing that you would think it's amazing it's uh, afforded to people right because they're people yeah, <laughs> yeah. people should work under dignifying conditions mm-hmm. but we go back to what we've been processing about that we are taking as much as we can from people with as little as we can give them right yeah these practices are put in place not by someone who has been working in the fields mm-hmm. but by someone who's very disconnected from the land cuz had this person that is owning the land, you know, had worked the land, he would know 
how much harder, how, what, it, what the strain it takes on the body of someone mm-hmm. to use that sword. Yeah. And even honestly, even if his motivation was not virtuous, but it was economic, he would know he could probably get more of a harvest with the long hose because you don't have people aching in the middle of, of harvesting. Disconnection from the land. That's the impact of the disconnection from the land. Yes, absolutely. And wow. so I think it was also in the context where she's at, you know, she's she's been here. I think one of my biggest impacts over the different points where we've stopped is meeting yeah. Joy, who's like she's a part of living history. Right. And here we have Juanita, who's a part of living history. Like it's someone that is very connected to this history in ways that they can still remember yeah. um, and that has stayed within those places of deep pain mm-hmm. and so and with those places of deep injustice mm-hmm. but who are also working to change those things and and to see uh, the sort of pride that she carried in her work yes um, all those pictures yes i mean the pictures honestly that's where it all hit home for me i'm like she's literally there in multiple pictures with Cesar, with dolores with the UFW, like she is in it. You know, when a lot of us have seen the movie Dolores or we've seen the movie Cesar, Cesar Chavez or Chavez rather. But I mean, I think in some ways movies kind of mythologize people and we start thinking, oh, that was a good movie or, you know, oh, that actor was so great. We don't realize these are actual people who were in an actual struggle. And there we were. We had we had living history standing in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that yeah. was incredible to to see. Mm-hmm. I was going to say with the pride that she carries in her work is like that is such a deep contrast from the dehumanizing practices that we have on the fields, right? And so it's uh-huh. like in a place where you're your personhood is ignored, right? Like you're here just to pick my crops. Yeah. You're not worthy of a life, right? And then here she is like taking agency, like exercising her agency, her dominion over what she's doing and then having this pride. And like that's very, that is personhood enacted, right? Versus like, I mean, she was retelling us this story of her family being, being given like an old train wagon to live in. Right, like this is what God. they were given by the government, I assume, yes. Yes. Um, to live, right? Or the employer, the employer, yeah. yeah. And says so like they would do this wagon after wagon, family after family, and mom and dad had to fan their kids at night to keep them from being beaten by mosquitoes in this. Because there's no heat. door, they had no door. It was an open train cart in the field in Texas, in, in the scorching heat, in the scorching of Texas. heat. Yes. They had to fan their kids to sleep, yeah. Yeah, so it's like that, Take uh, the lack of dignity in that, the lack of, I mean, after be, after working on the fields, right, all day long in the scorching heat, you go back to this scorching heat wagon of a house. In contrast with, like, this woman who is made in the image of God, who has been exercising that image of God, yeah. who has been pouring into people, and who has seen... those workers with dignity enough to fight for those victories. The thing that really struck me is actually very similar to the experience of the black church, the historic black church, because in historic black church, you have deacons and elders and pastors who in their everyday lives were butlers and carmen 
and the servants in households, or they were the field hands. They were the people who were out in the fields. But in church, they actually had that space carved out where they could experience their their divine call to exercise dominion. And I was sitting there watching her kind of speak with us, and it, it struck me that most Americans, and most Americans would look at her and would think, they wouldn't think this consciously, but subconsciously would probably, probably think she was created to help me. She was created to be our housekeeper. She was created to be our nanny. She was created to be our, to be our versus she was created to exercise dominion. And here she is. Yes. Like you said, she is, she is exercising her agency to protect her people. Yes. Yeah. She's exercising her agency to serve her people, to serve actually all people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's powerful, beautiful and powerful. And I think in, in very much, um, the same way, the immigrant church today, um, for many immigrants is the place of the the only place where they can be treated with dignity, right? Like on the place where they're a deacon, where they're a pastor, whereas in the world, you are uh, standing and looking for work outside of Home Depot, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you're a day laborer, but then right. you come to church and you're an usher, you're you're a deacon, you're a pastor, you're preaching, you're you're a worship leader, and you're exercising that dominion. And I think I was also really struck by her commenting on the fact that I mean it was in passing, right? Like we asked her for testing the sound, what did you have for breakfast this morning? She said, you know, I was actually fasting. And so the beauty of that movement, um, the farm labor movement, was the deep spiritual roots that they had, you know, Cesar Chavez and the way that his his own spiritual work informed the movement. It informed his practices, right? Like for him, fasting was an exercise of his faith first and foremost. Mm -hmm. You know, when he didn't know what to do, when uh, when people did not want to follow or he, he was out of a lack of strategy, he said, you know, I need to go fast because in that, that's where he would find the answers. Mm-hmm. So it was rooted in a very spiritual place. Mm-hmm. And so I think oftentimes we forget or as a church, we think like these are, especially as a Western American, white American church, for lack of a better term, evangelical mm-hmm. church, I think we don't tend to think of people, uh, especially like farm workers or immigrants as, as like the church. They're not the church. They're the people that we evangelize to, the people that you know, yeah. they're here to serve me, but they're not the church. And, and here they are leading with spiritual practices and with their faith at the forefront yeah. to bring justice to people. Mm. Yeah, I'm reminded actually of something that our... Madrina Alexia Salvatierra says, she says, you know, she looked at that passage that's in um, one of the epistles and it says that be careful how you treat strangers because you might be interacting with an angel. And I remember the very first in Hebrews. Yes, yes. First time I ever saw that passage, I was doing homeless ministry in New York City. And I remember thinking to myself, Wow, I actually think I did meet an angel in a particular person, but I never really thought of it as, you know, look, they actually literally used to use the word stranger for immigrant. So they were not just saying people you don't know. That word is the word for immigrant. So be careful how you treat immigrants. You might be interacting with angels. In other words, we often think that immigrants are trying to come and take from us, but actually... Immigrants in scripture bless. Yes. They bless. They come with power to offer and to give. Yes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Alexia, for that thought. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. It's yeah. it's it's those narratives, right? Like it's like um, I had an opportunity to walk with some of the members of the different sets of caravans that have set out from um, Central America into the U.S. And mm-hmm. as I was meeting a lot of the families, a lot of what struck me was that is like the faith. Uh, the Christian faith mm-hmm. that they had, you know, the the songs, like uh, oftentimes break, breaking in songs, and that's what would sustain them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I remember gathering before many of them presented themselves at, at the U.S., um, at the Calexico border. Mm-hmm. And we said, um, Dios está aquí, tan cierto como el aire que respiro, tan cierto como en la mañana se levanta el sol, tan cierto que cuando le hablo Dios me puede oír. And so we, we sang that and we sang it over and over. And, and the song, it says, uh, God is here. As certain as the sun rises every morning, God is here. Mm-hmm. Um, as certain as uh, when I speak, when I talk to God, God can hear me. And, and and it is with that certainty that they presented themselves at the border. You know, it's like we sang this right before uh, we together walked to the um, to the point of entry and wow. uh, and asked to to be given asylum, right? Like to, to to exercise the right to be given asylum. And so. It is this faith that has motivated a lot of these movements and a lot of the fight for justice in these places. But I think we are so disconnected in the body of Christ and we tend to think of, well, we tend to think of Latinx people and yeah. um, immigrant people as uh, as other, as distant and as not the church. And as not having even any faith. And no in faith. fact, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're framed as criminals, mm-hmm. but it's their faith that's leading them to believe that God could possibly save their lives, save their lives by giving them refuge. I'm actually looking at the fields out the window and I'm, you know, it just, it just strikes me in the same way that we looked out the fields as we were leaving the Whitney plantation in Louisiana and realizing that the fields, the ground speaks, right? But it's covered over and it, it just looks nice and people... It, you can't see any workers out there right now. Just you don't. Plain. Yeah, just plain. You don't. You don't see the dead bodies in the desert. You don't see the militarization of this area, but it's here. It's here, and it just reminds me of how much we go about our daily lives. You know, kind of rolling on top of the oppression of others. Mm-hmm. rolling on top of it, you know, because our daily lives exist under the laws that do that oppression, mm-hmm. that oppress. Yeah, I think it's it's going again with that disconnection from the land, right? And so I think in some ways we hide that, right? Like uh, we were at the Whitney Plantation and he was saying, you know, the this is the, the big house where the landowners lived. Mm-hmm. And then about half a mile away yeah, 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 exactly. where the quarters for the enslaved people, right? And so it's like they're out of sight. Um, right. And then with peonage as, as, as well, like with the um, convict leasing, there's they're not they're out of sight right like you're doing this contract with the government you don't even know what's happening right like if somebody else is managing those things you're not not even there i think even today with um 
with migrant workers is like large corporations running hotel industries or like Disney is one of the biggest exploiters in the LA area where I'm from right and so and so it's like it's being ran at such a high level excuse me Mm -hmm. you know who knows what happens to to the hospitality workers that are pushing carts around that are working terrible hours at a very low wage right and that You know, there's actually a history that most people don't know that there's a direct connection between the lack of protection for field workers now and the enslaved before. And there's a direct connection between the lack of protection for hospitality workers and the um, the help, the maids that were the the house slaves when the labor act of ni- of 1935 or 36 something like that um came out they originally actually did include farm workers and also housekeepers but in order to pass it in order to get it through congress which meant they had to pass it past southern districts southern legislators they compromised and they left those two groups out because in the south They did not want to give fair wages and protections for work to the workers in the fields who were black and also to the house help who were black because they had their entire lives and for 200, nearly 300 years before that moment had always seen those people as not deserving of protection. And so the reason why when farm workers come into the fields now and they don't have those protections, the same worker protections that anybody else working in any other job would have, according to the law, is because they are working, they're moving into the seat of a former slave. Mm. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's... And it's current law. So I think one of the other things that has been blowing me away this whole time is how much black and brown people, we don't talk, we don't share notes, and we don't tend to fight each other's battles with each other. And we learn from each other, and then we fight our own battles. But I think what we, what I think what I'm just more and more being pressed with through this series is the reality that we are fighting the same battle. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same battle. Yes. It's just, you know, taking different shapes, slightly different shape for another era and another group that speaks another language. But that's it. That's it. And, you know, another piece. I'm sorry. I know I'm kind of talking a lot here, but another piece that's striking me because, I, hey, we're processing, right? And a lot, yes. there's a lot to process. <laughs> yes. But um, another piece that's, that strikes me is that. When you go back to the logics we were talking about earlier, the logics of race um, that Andrea Smith drew, Mm -hmm. that I believe now, I've come to believe that people of African descent were able to be put into the situation of peonage because when you take away somebody's right to vote, you're basically making them a non-citizen. Yes. You're, you then see them, and I think this has always been true, particularly in the South, that white people in the South have never seen people of African descent as American, in the same way that Michael Mata talked about the fact that he was born in America, and yet he was never thought of as an American in his, in his classrooms. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how they're able, they were able to do the sharecropping system, and they were able to do peonage. Because they didn't see 
they didn't see they saw these people as a foreign threat as as foreigners who need to be jailed and contained yeah you know? and uh, yeah it's, it's that concept of like who is american i think in in some ways oftentimes i think by american we say who is white yeah like who you're not white enough you're not uh, white enough to be american you know it's like yeah. how do we a professor of mine, Dr. Martinez, oftentimes says he grew up um, being in um, in his family. There's a history of farm workers. And uh, and he says, you know, oftentimes, like, the narrative is like, oh, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, want to be white, you know. And so it's the... Wow. It's the... Wait, like, he actually said that? I mean, like, that's like... It, it's not the... It, it, it's like the, the the narratives that are communicated, right? Like that's not what he wanted to be. Okay. But, yeah, well, I mean, no, sorry. But no, no but, but you know, some people you never know. Yeah, like yeah. This this self hatred goes so deep, you know. Yeah, so, he, yeah. he doesn't really. Uh, he, that's, that's not, not who he wanted to be. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. I mean, he, yes, no. But uh, but it's that like it's like I think we are raised with that desire of uh, we know when you grow up you want to be white because that's kind of what you where where life is at right because mm-hmm. at that time in in texas and in, in, in southwest california mm-hmm. texas there was a lot of oppression against um uh, people of mexican descent right and so you had the mexican schools you had uh, the schools that were integrated where if you spoke a foreign language if you bo- spoke spanish you were either physically punished or you were put in special education mm-hmm. and so uh, so a lot of people did not want to teach their, their children Spanish because they had had that experience, right? And so it, it got lost. The yeah. culture starts getting lost because you want people to treat your people right. And to treat them right means to shave off these parts of you that are that make you non-white. On Freedom Road, from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. McAllen is a border town along the southernmost tip of Texas, a porous region where the U.S. and Mexican economies have been interdependent for centuries. With the drug wars of the 1990s, immigrants were criminalized and the borderlands became more restricted. As a result of 9-11 and current political rhetoric that has demonized Mexican immigrants, the southern border has become a militarized zone stretching 100 miles into the U.S., 
McAllen, Texas is one of the largest points of entry into the entire United States. With the influx of Central American asylum seekers, the Customs and Border Patrol, known as the CBP, has developed new ways of processing refugees. In McAllen, they make room for new asylum seekers by turning them over to respite centers like the one run by Sister Norma Pimentel. How long have you been here? In the, like, how long have you been working here in the Rio Grande Valley? Well, you know, I, I am a native of the Rio Grande Valley, so I've been here all my life. I just went to school to uh, <clears throat> to different colleges. I was in St. Mary's in San Antonio, and then I was in Chicago, Loyola. And after that, I started after Loyola in Chicago. I, I came back and I was working full-time for Catholic Charities. So what drew you to stay here at the Rio Grande Valley? I, I'm here because I believe I'm part of who I, this Rio Grande Valley, this is my people. You know, I am part of the Rio Grande Valley and I I want to be part of what happens here and to help and give my, who I am, my skills, my gifts, what, I, what God has gifted me with to make our community, make a difference in our community, make it uh, better if we can in any way. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Respite Center in particular and how it began and what's, what's the mission? You know, the Respite Center was a response, a humanitarian response to a reality that, that we were seeing right here in our own community mm-hmm. back in 2014, June, the summer of 2014. And at that time, we had so many kids, unaccompanied kids that were classified as children that were not coming with their immediate parents. And there were so many of them that the Border Patrol was forced uh, to keep them in detention until they can figure out what to do with all these children. And so... so. Um, Around what year was this? 2014. Oh. And so what happened that the families, the children that came with mom or dad, those families were given permission to travel, to continue their legal process or immigration deportation proceedings somewhere else in the United States. Mm-hmm. That gave room for them to be able to uh, uh, hold the children in detention until they would pass them over to Office of Refugee and Resettlement, mm-hmm. who is the department that handles the unaccompanied children. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, these families, that kids with mom and dad, were released to the bus station in great numbers. The you know, bus station? The bus station. They could go. And so because they had a, a court date somewhere else, whether it's New York, Chicago, wherever else they said they had family or someone where they were going to. And there they needed to continue that legal immigration process. So... We saw them. Yeah. People in our community saw all these people in great distress. You know, really suffering. They were they were uh, dirty, muddy. They had just been processed and released. You know, and so uh, no no type of care had been given to them because obviously the processing facility didn't have and it's just a, office, a processing facility. They didn't have a kitchen. They didn't have restrooms and and uh, showers or anything like that. And so. All of them ended up at the bus station in dire need of help. And many of them were dehydrating because they've been through so much. And families here, just their hearts were broken just to see what they were seeing, moms and children and infants in terrible condition. So I received a call and they said, please help us. We want to help these families and we just have no clue how to go about this. So immediately I, I, take, I get in the car. It was late. It was after five. 
and we're going to the bus station. And Fira, I said, Norma, Norma, think, what, what do you need to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I said, the closest thing to the bus station is Sacred Heart. Mm -hmm. So let me call Father Tom. So I did, and I said, Father Tom, I need to borrow your parish hall for a couple of days. You know? Oh, my gosh. My couple of days turned to a couple of years. <gasps> because uh, <laughs> I... I stayed in that parish hall for three years. You know, you lived there. Well, Did not, you live? No. <laughs> I mean, but you, you we were actually had there. the respite center there, there. At, the, at the at the Sacred Heart Parish Hall. Yeah, yeah. We just mounted a whole operation from day one where we just called through social media people to come and help. They call their friends and they, their friends call their friends. They, they say, we need pampers, we need milk, we need this, we need that. And before you know it, the whole operation was, was there, you know, and we were there for three years. And now, since then, we moved to another location because... Really, that parish was really offering that up there, that parish hall, and I needed to give it back to them. <laughs> and so I needed to, and the numbers had kind of dropped down to less than 50. You know, we were not seeing that many families. I said, so a local sheriff actually let his family own some property near the bus station. And, and so I, I received that space so that we could move there. And so we set up shop and we continued the operation at a lesser scale. But then this past year, the numbers started to just go back up so much, you know, so much, so much that uh, there, there was no way we could fit anybody there anymore. It was just so big, the numbers that were coming. And so that's where this other, uh, somebody, a business person from the from here, from McAllen, Texas, said, Sister, I have a nursing home. You can use it as long as you want it. And so, <clears throat> so we moved there. And, of course, a nursing home with so many rooms, and commercial kitchen, laundromat, everything. Oh and so gosh. it was from where we were to there. It, it, we exploded uh, to 400 people a day that we were getting, you know. And so it worked great. But, of course, since then, uh, many of the local residents were not very happy that we moved there. And so we started to, we were asked by the city that relocating the, the respite center would be best and they would help us find the new location. And so we have. And so right now we are uh, working at getting this building that is already, the city already owns and would like for us to be able to move there. And so we're setting it up. We're going to paint this weekend and and uh, oh everything that we need. So Are you going to have a paintbrush in your hand? You are? I don't know. <laughs> I, ho I hope not. Okay. <laughs> I was like, but, I want a picture. I want a picture of that. But we definitely will have that. We're, <laughs> we're going to get it set up for in, in possibly in two weeks we get to start moving there. So have you seen conditions? You just said that you've just basically mapped the changes that you've seen in the flow at the border. And I'm wondering, what do you think is the most recent flow from? What is that? You know, I think a lot... Some uh, weeks past, maybe a month already, we started to see that that interest in, in the fact that there was an emergency at the border. Right, our administration was really pushing that there was an an, uh, an emergency and that we needed to do something at the border to stop what was happening. And so I think that that kind of provoked uh, a snowball effect about people coming. You know. And, and so we start seeing not only uh, people, the Border Patrol is releasing people uh, in greater numbers, maybe a thousand number people at one time, you know, and not only in McAllen, but in every single bus station of, of the Rio Grande Valley. Wow. And so 
it became overwhelming, and and I don't know, people were coming in such big numbers, and it didn't stop. It just continued, you know. And so, what provoked it, you know, is something that we uh, is we can come up with so, so many uh, so reasons, but you know, honestly, it almost feels like it's man-made provoking. Somebody caused this to happen, you know, because mm-hmm. it wasn't like that, and all of a sudden, it happened, you know, and so. Numbers have kind of gone down since then. We were seeing 800 maybe a day. Now we're seeing more like 500 a day. You know, but, this is still a lot. But still but, a lot of people, you know, and yeah. uh, and and we're still there trying to do our best and 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 to receive the families and making sure we have the different sites available for people, not not just our respite center, but we sometimes we have the Baptist church up, opening up their church to take people at night. We have Salvation Army that's out is also very helpful and the Lutherans uh, so many faith denominations communities that are so willing and wanting to help and be part of this response wow yeah I think um Today, what does a day-to-day look like? Like if a, if a new family comes through the doors of the respite center, what would they experience? Well, you know, one of the main things that's so important in that first encounter that we have with the family when they just arrive, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's the fact that they've been in a, a very long journey where with so many difficult um, encounters along the way. And in the last most difficult one has been when they're in detention under those circumstances where they are there with freezing temperatures and fearful of what their future looks like, uh, not knowing what's going to happen to them, very scared. And then they get released to us. And so when they arrive to our doorsteps, there's a sense of relief, a sense of restoring that dignity that they've lost along the way. And that for the very first time in a long time, they have a person that welcomes them, that that, that has a smile and that shows that they care about them. And so you can see it right away. They're changing their, in their face. Some of them even cry of the joy of that they being welcome and that they, that there are people that care about them, you know? And so I think that that's, that's one of the things that they see immediately when they arrive to the respite center. And I'm sure that happens not just here in McAllen, but throughout the whole border in any other place like from California to Texas, you know, that people with such compassion and care are present to them to say, I care about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the first welcoming phase, uh, the phase that welcomes. And part of what you said is like that moment of uh, restoring dignity, right? And so you said uh, earlier that a lot of your work is centered around protecting life. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, well, you know, um, I think that that it's sad for me to see a human life mistreated and 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 hurting because of negligence or because of the fact that other people have uh, have no respect to life, you know, to that human person, that they think that it's okay to take advantage of them, that they can mistreat them and treat them as nothing, you know. They can be discarded as people that don't matter, you know. And I think every human life matters. And so I, I, I think that when we, are, when we uh, give ourselves permission to hurt somebody else, you know, that means that we have no respect for for human life and for that matter for God, you know, because God is who created us, you know, and so it, it's so important that that we respect all life, 
you know, Absolutely. and it starts with ourselves, learning to respect ourselves and respect our families mm-hmm. and those close to us, but also to the stranger and that person who is other than me that made me make me uncomfortable because they're different from me, maybe their beliefs or maybe their the the way they look, you know, and so learning to welcome even the other that makes me uncomfortable and makes me realize that they too are a child of God. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And have you seen any practices that um, that basically erase that or that don't protect life, like maybe immigration practices or labor practices that... Um, I think that that there's there are many things that that unfortunately are unjust. Many of our policies are unjust because they look maybe only at one aspect. And for example, some policies focus on deterrence on, on making sure that we stop this flow of immigrants coming to our country, and they look at that at that aspect as oh, it's not good for us, you know. And but we don't look at the effects of that particular policy. For example, the policy that was this was made to separate families, you know, and children from their parents, you know, that was so wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. and because all they were looking at doing was deterring families and sending a message, don't come because if you do, you will be separated from your child. And so that's so wrong, you know, that we don't, we allow ourselves to go to the extreme of not caring about a child and and a family and, 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 and destroying that unity, you know, and so... Laws and policies like those and actions like that are wrong, and we must we must say go and contest them and say that that we should not allow them to exist. You know, Amen. Can you talk to us a little bit more about asylum seekers in particular, and and you know, well, I'll read it. Um, can we talk about asylum seekers and the current way that they're detained? Are they still detained in the cages? And is that happening in this area in McAllen? And um, and also in particular in the for-profit and government detainer, like detention centers. You know, I, I, I believe that our country, unfortunately, does not have a good immigration process and immigration. That's why there's such an interest in, in, in reforming our immigration uh, laws and processes because unfortunately we we families who are here entering our country asking for protection for safety for asylum uh, they end up in detention facilities that really are so not humane for them you know and so we just lump them together with all criminals you know we use the same process that we use for any criminal that enters our country it's the same process that is used for any family who is coming here asking for protection, for safety, and we must stop the abuse, you know, and so they've been abused so much, and we, our laws presently are not stopping the abuse that they're experiencing, so I, I think that, that that needs to be corrected, you know, and our immigration laws need to respond to, in a more compassionate way, to individuals who are here seeking protection and safety, who are not a threat to the United States, who are a, really a refugee asking for help. And we must be able to create a safe passage for them and not keep them in detention facilities that are so detrimental and so harming for them. And that's why I believe that many of the children are passing, dying, you know, because it, it's not a setting for a family or for a child, you know. Wow. Is there a recent story that actually kind of encapsulates what you just said, what you just talked about. Uh, 
I don't know. I, uh, there's so many stories, and I cannot <laughs> say I, I'll pick one. You know, yeah, we, that's fine. we can definitely pick the children that just passed away. Yeah. That that will highlight the fact that, you know, that just tells us that children are. Uh, it's not a place to be in detention like that. They need special care and attention, and it's very hard to do that in those settings, you know. And so I think that as much as they try to do their best to to respond to this reality in those detention facilities, it doesn't, it, they are not able to successfully uh, do that. And so uh, I think that they, they're definitely looking into other options is, is, is the answer. And uh, uh, I think that they are looking at other options and I hope hopefully they will be successful in carrying them out, you know. When people present themselves to claim asylum, the practice has been to transfer people from the Customs and Border Patrol to ICE custody. ICE detains asylum seekers apprehended at the border. Attorney General William Barr announced in April of 2019 that asylum seekers cannot fight their cases outside of detention. They need to remain in detention while their cases are pending, which could take years. Detention centers are essentially prisons converted from or shared with working correctional facilities. So what would justice rolling down look like um, for migrant workers? I think today for migrant workers, for immigrant uh, workers in the U.S., justice rolling down would look like some of it in the most basic forms, like being able to have a say in what kind of cars you would push for doing mm-hmm. hospitality labor, mm-hmm. right? Like um, how many hours you would work mm-hmm. um, for a decent wage, for a fair wage. Mm-hmm. Um, it would look like the ability to be able to carve out time and space to be with your family and eat of the fruit of your labor, mm-hmm. right? Like eat mm-hmm. the crops that you pick. Um, it would look like having the ability to remain in a place where you can flourish, mm. um, not to be pushed out because the land has been contaminated because of um, climate change that has made it, um, has made the land no longer produce what it could produce and you being pushed out into another land. Wow. So I think migration needs to be, um, needs to be by choice, not by force. Mm. Um, and, and you should have the ability to stay where you belong, where you are, where you want to be, um, and flourish. It would look like, um, the ability to, to live out the full dignity of who God has made you, including your ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. Including your brownness. Um, and not be not needing to whitify. That is exactly the word that I use. Not needing to whitify yourself. Yes. Yes. Not needing to yes. whitify yourself to have a position of dignity, to have a position of leadership, um, to be able to have access to the places of of influence. While rolling through the desert from San Antonio to McAllen, I couldn't help but think of the many images of God that have died there, trying to find work, trying to find a better life for their families. I thought of the artifacts found in the desert, 
I thought of the story of one of the men I met in the tent of the Fast for Families six years ago. His cousin died in the desert. So, in my home country of Mexico, every time a person passed away, after their passing, we would hold nine days of mourning, una novena, and we would uh, pray the rosary as well as um, sing different songs. And so, um, must start by singing one of the songs in honor of the deaths that we have seen here in this border. Um, we have seen many deaths, both that the desert has taken, as our um, administration has used the desert as the biggest deterrent of people. If we just put policies in place that force people to use the desert, the desert will lead them up. So we'll um, sing a song in that, and then we'll also do a, we'll pray the rosary in honor of those that have died, and especially um, the children that have died in the custody of, uh, in detention, children that have died um, in detention um, lately. And so the song, you may know because, and I know it by heart, because it's the song that we sang at my grandparents' funerals. Aunque en esta vida no tengo riquezas, sé que allá en la gloria tengo una mansión, cual alma perdida. Entre la pobreza de mi Jesucristo tuvo compasión. Más allá del sol, más allá del sol. Yo tengo un hogar, hogar, bello hogar, más allá del sol, más allá del sol, más allá del sol. Yo tengo un hogar, hogar, bello hogar, más allá del sol. Beyond the sand, I have a home, a beautiful, beautiful home. And our spirits return to that home. So now we will um, pray. Our Father, Padre nuestro que estás en el cielo, santificado sea tu nombre. Venga a nosotros tu reino. Hágase tu voluntad en la tierra como en el cielo. Danos hoy nuestro pan de cada día. Perdona nuestras ofensas, como también nosotros perdonamos a los que nos ofenden. No nos dejes caer en la tentación y líbranos del mal. Amén. Amén. Dios te salve, María, llena eres de gracia. El Señor es contigo. Bendita tú eres entre todas las mujeres y bendito es el fruto de tu vientre, Jesús. Santa María, Madre de Dios, ruega por nosotros los pecadores, ahora y en la hora de nuestra muerte. Amén. 
Gloria al Padre, gloria al Hijo, gloria al Espíritu Santo, como era en el principio, sea ahora y por siempre, por los siglos de los siglos. Amén. Walking forward on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. This Freedom Road podcast episode was recorded on pilgrimage in San Antonio and McAllen, Texas, in partnership with Sojourners and the work of the people. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We will not flood your inbox, promise. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join us on Freedom Road. 